You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Sluggo Cola, the drink of choice for the Ferengi Commerce Alliance. Sluggo Cola, it's the slimiest cola in the galaxy. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 408, Profit and Lace. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, eventually hitting them all, and examining it for the morals, meanings, and messages therein. This week, Prophet and Lace, the one where Quark gets inspired by Zek to do his best impression of a Ferengi female in order to save the Commerce Alliance. Heels are worn... Polarity ensues? Oh, I bet it does. In fact, there's not a doubt firing in my mind about that. I tell you what, why don't you tell people where to reach us, and, and then it's on to trivia. Deep breath. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here is John Doubtfire with this week's trivia. All right. Well, thank you for that, Tootsie. Uh, trivia for today's episode, Prophet and Lace. It was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler, but as always... That's not the total picture. The writers had always been looking for ways to revisit what was happening on Ferenginar and where the Zek-Ishka relationship was going, and if we'd ever see some social progress. Rene Echeverria was the one who brought it up that uh, Quark would probably end up in a dress, and thus it went. The episode was directed by Alexander Siddig. Remember that Sid directed one episode of DS9 so far. That was in Season 5 with another Quark-centric episode, Business as Usual. This episode is his second and final directing credit. Let's talk about our guest stars. Well, we welcome back Cecily Adams as Ishka slash Moogie. Then there's the great Wallace Shawn as Zach. Uh, you've also got the ironically named Tiny Ron as Mehardu and his counterpart Uri Lash, played by Sylvain Cecile. Chase Masterson is here playing Lita again. And, of course, we have chameleon Jeffrey Combs playing Brunt, formerly Liquidator, now acting Grand Nagus. We do meet a couple of new characters, though. Working for Quark and bookending the episode is Allura, played by Simba Smith, 
sometimes just credited with her first name, Simba. Uh, she won a Miss Teen America pageant and then moved on to Star Search, where she won $100,000 and a launch into her acting career. She first appeared in the sitcom Blossom, then on to a number of TV guest roles and some impressive feature films as well. L.A. Confidential, Last Action Hero, Naked Gun 33 and a Third, Beverly Hills Cop 3. She has other sci-fi TV credits too, like Sarah Connor Chronicles and one other Trek appearance on Voyager. And finally, there is Ferengi Nilva, owner of Slogo Cola, played by legendary comic actor Henry Gibson. Henry's breakout role was in the Jerry Lewis film The Nutty Professor, a part he was offered when Jerry was guest hosting The Tonight Show with Henry as a guest. The host loved the performer's demeanor and brought him into the movie. A long and diverse career followed, mostly in comedy, and he was a well-known regular on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, and he even brought a comedic edge to some of the more sinister roles he played, like the Illinois Nazi and the Blues Brothers. Later in his career, he had a recurring role on Boston Legal as a judge, and that was the final credit before his passing in 2009. Now, to me, one of the most interesting things about Henry is that Henry Gibson was a character he was playing. He was actually born James Bateman, but he and fellow actor and friend and roommate John Voigt were working on a comedy routine about a couple of hillbillies. Voigt bailed out, Henry kept it going in his character name, and the persona stuck. And that's what became his ticket to success. Who will bear the brunt of Quark's latest crazy scheme? Let's find out. Prologue. It's employee review time at Quark's Bar, and here's the proprietor himself heaping praise upon a relatively new Dabo girl named Allura. There's a catch, though. Quark is using this opportunity to pressure his employee into a little umox for fun and profit, as his book recommendation calls it. She's noticeably uncomfortable, and just before we can all let that discomfort settle in, Rom comes bounding in with some news. He can't reach Moogie, or anyone on Ferenginar for that matter. Nobody. Worried that it might mean the Dominion have taken over, the brothers go to Ops to get some help from the senior staff, but they don't see any sign of Dominion activity. Fortunately, just then, a Ferengi shuttle requests permission to dock, it's Grand Negus Zek and Ishka, Quark, and Rom's Moogie. Thank goodness they're alive, but they have some news. Zek decreed that Ferengi women can now wear clothes, which means they can work, which means they can earn profit. It's a very progressive policy, urged, of course, by Ishka. Rom is glad. Quark is appalled. In this time of social change, though, the Ferengi financial markets are in a tailspin. Communications are blacked out, and Zek has been deposed, temporarily replaced by Brunt, until such time the Ferengi Commerce Authority confirms him, which is three days from now. Act 1. Zek and Ishka make their temporary home on DS9 while Zek breaks the plan to Quark. They'll invite other commissioners from the FCA to meet here on the station, and then... 
Ishka will somehow win them over with her keen business sense, and then Zek will be reinstated. The invitations go out, all 432 of them, and there are no takers, except one. Nilva is the commissioner who is the head of Sluggo Cola, popular among Ferengi for over 300 years. He's traditional, but also influential. He might be able to change some minds, if Ishka can convince him. Before they can make their plans, though, an uninvited visitor shows up on DS9 to thwart their plans. Acting Grand Nagus, Brunt. Act 2. Brunt is full of himself, of course, not moved one bit by being a part of the daring rescue when Ishka was captured by the Dominion. Zek regrets reinstating him at all, and now Brunt smugly asks for a sluggo cola from the bar, then declines it, because he's sure Nilva will offer him, the future Grand Nagus, all the sluggo he can drink. Oh yeah, Brunt even knows about Nilva's meeting, because... But when Quark can no longer take Brunt's condescension, or threat to turn him into a pauper, he kicks him out of the bar. Quark, despondent in his quarters, is visited by Moogie. She's trying to get him to go back to the bar, play a game of Tongo as Zack, and just stop being so miserable. But Quark is only moved to frustration with his mother. Her feminine wiles have changed Zack, uprooted the Ferengi economy, and disrupted the entire Ferengi way of life. He's embarrassed, furious, and just wants things to be the way they were, the way they always have been. As their anger toward each other grows, Moogie puts Quark in his place as an ungrateful son, stuck in his ways, and then the more heated the argument gets, Moogie passes out. Cut to the infirmary, where Quark is saying he has no idea what happened, but Dr. Bashir reports that Ishka needs undisturbed rest for a few days, and Quark needs to stay completely away from her. She does keep saying it's all Quark's fault. Later in the bar... Quark admits to Zek and Rom what went on. He accused her of being the worst thing that ever happened to the Ferengi Alliance, and that's when Moogie clutched her chest and passed out. Brunt walks in, hoping to take advantage of the situation. He's rubbing again in their faces that Nilva is on his way, expecting to meet with a brilliant female Ferengi, and is sure to be disappointed with Ishka not around. Brunt's just counting down those last couple of days until the Alliance confirms him as Grand Nagus. But then Zack is struck with inspiration. Ishka wouldn't give up, so neither can they. Without another female Ferengi anywhere in sight, and a hologram won't cut it, they'll have to come up with something or someone else, like Quark himself. Act 3. Fast forward through whatever it took to convince Quark and whatever Dr. Bashir did to surgically alter him, Quark now has the outward appearance of a female Ferengi, and he's getting some lessons from Ram and Lita about how to carry himself, how to present himself more convincingly. It's going to take a lot of work. On top of that, Zack presents Quark with the extensive notes Ishka had been working on for the negotiation. At least he's got another day before Nilva shows up. Oh, what's that? He's here now? That Nilva always throwing people off guard in a negotiation. Act 4. On his way through the corridors of DS9, Nilva bumps into Brunt. He's saying he's ready to meet Ishka, but Brunt breaks the news that she's in the infirmary. 
Nog chimes in that another of Zek's female visitors is there, Lumba. And, of course, Brunt has never heard of her. Nog tries to stall, but Nilva is insistent. He stops by Zek's quarters, sluggo colas in hand for everyone, just as Quark slash Lumba is trying to get his slash her act polished. Zek stalls. Why don't they have dinner tonight at Quark's bar, and he can meet with Lumba tomorrow? That won't work, though. Nilva has other important business to attend to, so he insists on the meeting now, with Lumba, even if it means the indignity of being seen in public with a clothed female. Over a couple of lightly seared snail steaks, Nilva listens intently as Lumba spells out the benefits of allowing females to have equal rights— Wearing clothes means pockets. Pockets mean a place to put some latinum. Latinum means earning and spending. Why not add half the population into the Ferengi economy? Lumba goes one better. She'll even help Nilva increase sales of Sluggo Cola with some clever marketing to appeal to the female audience. Nilva is impressed. In fact, he suggests they wrap up this dinner meeting with dessert. He means in his quarters. Act 5. Back in his quarters, Nilva is really pressuring Lumba. Chasing around the table into the bedroom, there's quite a ruckus with furniture being thrown, Lumba dodging every advance. They keep this up for a while until Brunt walks in, throwing cold water on the ruse, announcing that Lumba is really Quark the bartender, and how could Nilva not even tell? Quark tries to convince Nilva otherwise, even giving him a kiss to prove he's really Lumba. Nilva is not convinced by Brunt. What does convince him is when Lumba defiantly unbuttons her top and reveals uh, herself to both Nilva and Brunt. It's all the proof Nilva needs. At least she's female enough for him, and he's ready to throw his support behind Zek. Some hours have passed. And Quark is back to himself, back behind the bar. He's holding a ring, presented to him by Nova. Odo sees him looking wistful, depressed. Quark admits that he thought Nova was a sweet but lonely man. Oh, maybe it's the hormones talking, but Quark really misses him, and really, uh, all he needs is a hug. From Odo, the constable complies. Zek and a now-recovered Ishka walk in announcing their return to Ferenginar, where they hope Nilva's support will keep Zek in power as Grand Nagus, despite Brunt's protests. Quark and his Moogie have a moment to reconcile. He admits that he learned a little something about being more compassionate, more empathetic. To this, Zek says not to worry, he'll be back to his old self soon enough. Once they've gone, Quark turns back to his bar and sees Allura. She says she's read the book, Umox, for fun and profit, and Quark is terribly apologetic, saying he'll give her a raise and he's sorry about the book, but Allura is a little disappointed, saying she liked the book, and a bit of Umox sounds like fun, but if he's not interested anymore, she'll just walk away. Quark looks sincere for a moment, then runs right after Allura. The end. You know, John, it's time for your review. And I just want to let you know that you've been really nice to pretty much everybody, our guest stars and other podcasters that have come on the show. Mm -hmm. 
I, I know that maybe you could be a little bit nicer to me. So I have a book for you. It's called Podcasting and Petting. <laughs> so I really want you to read this oh. and see if you can oh. assuage some of, of my hurt mm-hmm. feelings. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, yeah, hurt mm-hmm. feelings and then fun. Pro. Oh, I know, I, I know where this leads, Norman. I know where this leads, and it's uh, it's not a good place. Um, so uh, the the cringe that you just instilled is the same mm-hmm. cringe that I felt in that opening between Quark and Allura. Yeah. And look, look, I, even from the beginning, even before getting through the episode and rewatching it and rewatching it a few times, we know they're setting up a scene for some payoff later. I get that. I know the Quark has been and will continue to be very Ferengi and just this side of being a total criminal. But this, this moment, ah, well, okay, let's see if he learns anything from it, shall we? Yeah, the bookend is a little heavy-handed yeah. because we know from the last couple of episodes that Quark has started to trend a certain way. Yeah. So setting him up like this, you know that there's going to be a payoff at the end. But is there really a there payoff? Was. But is there, and, and maybe we'll come back around to it, but I, I question yeah. if there is because they started the scene with that sweet, genuine moment and where, oh, look, he, he's learned something. He, he's backing down. But mm-hmm. then when she counters and he just like, oh, I'm back to my old self again. It's almost like freeze frame slap on the back in a really cringy way. And yeah, we can say that she read this and she was consenting, but she only read it because he forced her with the threat of her job. And that right. is cringe, cringe-tastic. Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, Frankie, uh, if for anything, they are consistent. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Culturally consistent. So you have Quark's Bar and Grill. You have mm-hmm. the Gaming House and Hollow Suite Arcade. <laughs> yeah. His his establishment's title just gets longer and longer and longer. And now I guess you can add House of Harassment. Yay! Hey, welcome. Come on down to Quark's House of Harassment, where you will mm-hmm. get harassed. No question. You just will be. <laughs> just wait your turn. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, oh. all right. Now, speaking of great lines, a Dominion invasion of Ferenginar. Think of the terrible repercussions. I cannot think of any. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. All right. Not only, not only is it Worf just delivering the perfect one-liner, I love that you can barely even see him in the shot. It, it's just it moves by so fast. He's way in the background. You saw him in the establishing shot before, but you just hear it. <laughs> you just zoom right past that joke. Love it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like Worf goes, bam. You know, mm-hmm. he. we haven't seen much of him. Yep. But he comes roaring back. Just when you think that he's on the ropes, he just comes in with this right hook. Can can you he is can can you just hmm. can you imagine like you get the script that week, you're Michael Dorn, you look at it, it just go like, I only have to work one day this week, I'm doing one line, and then I'm done, but my line is the best line in the episode. <laughs> you know? I'll tell you what, when it comes to pound for pound mm-hmm. contractual obligations, yeah. That was the one in this episode. Yes, they had Odo in it at the end, but yep. it didn't make the impact that, that Worf did. It is best line in the exactly. episode by yep. far. Yeah. And uh, just when you think that, that Zek is setting up like this change, he's like being a little bit more progressive. Then he takes a look at Lita yeah. 
And yeah. again, the Ferengi, if for anything, they are culturally consistent. She doesn't look broke to me. Yeah. <laughs> you <know>? Yikes. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that beetle snuff is a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> that it is, you know. Okay, all right. So speaking of Beatles snuff, though, and I, I do want to talk about some directorial choices because I'll come back mm-hmm. to this in the wrap up, just talking about uh, Sid's approach here and what happened with the episode. I did not care for the bit with the Beatles snuff, and they they use that powdery sneeze as the scene transition. Like like sometimes you can really be entertained and impressed with an artistic choice for a transition. This wasn't it but i i respect the idea they were just going for something to try something mm-hmm. different but i did really like the overlapping shots of uh cork nog and rom using the subspace transceivers it, it was a good way to do a little mini montage and it just like the the pacing the movement all of that i thought was very cool yeah and then i believe it was between nog and well, it's either Nog, Ram, and Quark, but mm-hmm. definitely Nog, where they mentioned the 94th rule of acquisition, females and finances don't mix. Yes. And I looked it up again just to reference myself, and it was in Frankie Love Songs, which was in season five. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, Episode 20. Nice, yeah. nice little callback there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and I just, <laughs> I love, I love the sort of very half-hearted singing of the Sluggo Cola jingle, <laughs> which I mean, like, which is terrible anyway. Like it's a terrible jingle, no matter what. Uh, but then the, just sitting around and and just with the last ounce of energy singing it, I, that was a funny moment. Um, now, frankly, when I hear Sluggo, I think of Mr. Bill's Nemesis, and that is a, a shout out for all of you who remember your early Saturday Night Live trivia, Sluggo, Mr. Bill's enemy. Um, but now I also it just phonically, I, I think of Slusho from the Abrams verse, uh, because that was a product that shows up in several places. And, you know, in my first couple of viewings, you know, I was uh, just kind of trying to get the plot down. And then I heard that and I said, they had Slusho in Deep Space Nine, too. But yes, it was Sluggo. But I thought they said Slusho. And yeah. I don't know. I, I thought it was just a interesting callback to 2009, mm-hmm. the drink that Uhura ordered. There you go. Yeah, it's very, oh, oh, and I did like uh, Ilvasser, um, which is a great name for a drink. It made me think of Kirschwasser, uh, which I'm sure was the intent. When I heard Ilvasser, mm-hmm. I said, well, Wasser is water. Mm-hmm. Eel is obvious. Yeah. That makes it eel water? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. <laughs> I guess it's, I don't know if it's better than Slusho. We'll soon it, find it's out. It's very Ferengi. Yeah. And uh, speaking of very Ferengi, I love when Moogie calls Grand Nagus acting. Grand Nagus Brunt, uh, Limp Lopes. That's hilarious. Yes, yes. It's just hilarious. Yes. That is good stuff. Oh, by the way, I, I keep seeing this and I keep bringing this up, but that blood wine cup prop is really making the rounds in the last couple of the episodes. So I always thought that the blood wine cup was something ceremonial, but is it just really kind of like the DS9 version of the red solo cup? Oh, yeah. Is it just like a bar thing? For Cork now? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Should, yeah. should, should Toby Keith sing a song about yeah. it? <laughs> Perhaps so. Oh, and, and I, I do think, uh, funny enough, that both of those, the Ilvasser and the uh, Sluggo, were creations that Ira and Robert Hewitt Wolf put into their novel Legends of the Ferengi, and then it was only later that they appeared in the shows. So that that is kind of a nice little uh, nice little nod to people who maybe picked up that book before the episode. Oh, oh, and, and um, 
the bit about making Sluggo Cola her drink, that reminded me of how many incredibly dumb product marketing campaigns there have been to sell products based on gender. Like my all-time favorite, and Norman, you probably can think of some too, Bic mm-hmm. Pen for her, which oh, was yeah. just so incredibly dumb. You can still read the reviews on Amazon, which are hilarious. Now, sadly, you can't order the pens anymore. <laughs> They're gone. But the reviews are hilarious. So uh, go to Amazon, look up Big Pen for well, I mean, uh, they they created the Virginia Slims brand so that women would have a sleeker, cooler cigarette right. so they didn't look so masculine. Which was a success in its day. I assume, I think they're still made, but not, you know, they had a huge marketing campaign at the time. Uh, but it, it was kind of gratifying to see Big Pen come and go very quickly. <laughs> people, people call it out. Yeah. Oh, and uh, if you want something very masculine, but for women, mm. they, that was the design of the hammerless 38. So it wouldn't get caught in a woman's purse as she pulled it out of her purse to defend That's herself. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when she was reaching for her Virginia Slims, her... Yeah. Hammerless 38 yeah, was right yeah, next right to it. There. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love the small details in, in some of the writing of this episode. I love that Rom drops all these, you know, these, these kind of Jack Tripper type moments, you know, when mm. he's uh, giving these little points of how do you know these things? How do you know that earrings make, you know, the, the ensemble or to tighten your buttocks, you know, right. if you have to sit to be more, to be more feminine. Right. And and leading to Lita saying that's adorable and complicated. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I just find that that I find that that very, was uh, a nice little thing to drop into the script. I do love that. I like seeing the uh, surgical red smock come back mm-hmm. uh, for an appearance when Doctor Bashir comes out after treating Moogie. But Bashir has this weird way, or at least the way that they write him, he has this weird way of jumping into everyone else's opinion of what's happening. Like, he doesn't know what's happening. Then all of a sudden, he's like, yeah, quark, you big jerk. Yeah. Like, how, what do you yeah, know? He, you just treated a patient. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> yeah. Stay in your lane, Dr. Bashir. All right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, look, I, I know that I just, I will point it out every single time, and I apologize for being repetitive. Jeffrey Combs, he just chews scenery into a pulp. Just, just that one moment, his reaction to seeing Ishka for the first time Will someone please tell that female to take off those clothes? He just, ah, <laughs> uh, he's so wonderful. It, he doesn't even look. He, he's sort of his, his eyes go in a different direction when he's, ah, uh, it's great. I think I spent half this episode, like, trying to figure out which actor was really trying their very hardest not to break in certain scenes. Yeah. I think he was on the fence a couple of times. Yeah. You could just tell. Like, he was biting his lip, you know, yes. like clenching his fists off camera. Right. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, John. The more I see Brunt, I think he is absolutely my favorite Jeffrey Combs character. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. He just, he's just so, I don't know, like in Wei-Yoon, you feel like it's Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. Even with Shran later on in Enterprise, yeah. you feel it's Jeffrey Combs. But with Brunt, though, maybe it's the makeup, but he just absorbs all the qualities yeah. of a true capitalist brutal, sexist, misogynist for Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. When they're trying to decide what to do uh, when Ishka has her attack and she's in the infirmary, uh, they, you know, they have to find a female. What do they do? What could be better than a hologram? And, and I just thought, well, 
if you've watched the last few episodes of DS9, the answer would either be nothing or everything. Yeah. yeah. I guess they should have uh, either uh, tried to find a way to save uh, Tolar or hire Felix. Because, yeah. <laughs> right. hey, Felix can create Felix sentient holograms. He can. So. He can. I say this too. I mean, the, the way you say about Jeffrey Combs, I say this about most Ferengi episodes, if not all of them. I love the costuming in Ferengi episodes. Mm. I think the costuming is fabulous. It's it's overdone. It's opulent. It's extravagant. It's garish. Yeah. It's totally in sync culturally with the Ferengi. Yeah. And I know that it was done for laughs, and, and I'm going to expound on this a little bit later on because I, I have certain very strong opinions about it. But I was actually concerned when, when Armin got into the heels as Lumba mm. and stumbled. I wasn't sure if that was a pre-planned stumble or a stumble. Yeah. I've rolled my ankle like that a couple yeah. times playing sports. And believe me, man, that is something that you – that's a six- to eight-week injury yeah. easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that, that was – yeah, that, that played very real. I do want to ask you about something that maybe didn't play that real for me. And I, I just – I don't know if I have a really strong thought on this, but I'm curious your thought because I, I watched this scene obviously a few times. The uh, Quark slash Lumba kiss with uh, Nelvin. I, I I felt. Did you feel like they pulled their punches there a bit? Because there's a lot. There's like two cuts within that one scene, within just literally that one moment. There's a couple of cuts, mm-hmm. and I feel like for a show that already had uh, a same-sex kiss with Dax, why sort of, like, hide the joke here? You, you know? I, I I don't know. It, it just it, it played a little strange to me. Maybe I'm making more out of it than I should, but it, mm-hmm. it, it maybe it was just the editing that seemed like, oh, we, we really don't want to show you that. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it's not two guys kissing. No, seriously, we're going to cut away. I think what the problem was with that scene was that it was a hat on 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 a yeah, hat. Yeah, too many hats. Right? Yeah. Too many hats. There were too many there were too many puns uh about this particular Tootsie type situation mm-hmm. and you didn't need all of them. You were overselling the entirety of that uh of the the cringeworthiness of that moment. Either do the kiss scene or do the zip down. I'm going to show you that I am have been surgically altered scene, yeah. but you can't have both because it's way overdone and it's way, uh, just, uh, hammered yeah. home way too much. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? We just recently released our interview with Armin Shimmerman and it's too bad that we weren't in sync with his interview. And then watching this prior to that, because I had so many questions <laughs> for him after watching this episode, and hopefully we can have him back on the show later we'll, on. We'll save that for part two. Okay, everybody. Eyes and ears up here. Let's see what John and Norman made of this story. We'll get right back to the show in a moment, but first, a word from this week's sponsors. Uh, First and foremost, thank you to you, 
our Patreon subscribers. You have not only helped support the show, but you've helped us build a community online through our Discord, through our Patreon page. And it is exciting to go there every day and have a chat, have a chat about Star Trek, about our lives, about uh, what's coming up on Star Trek, about really anything under the sun. And uh, thank you, Norm, for even setting up a food and beverage channel for me because, well... Of course, that had to happen. I think that's probably our popular, most popular channel on Discord. And why not? Because we're all human beings. We all have to talk about the one thing we all have in common. Then that's delicious food. Hey, we'll just tease it out there. There's even Star Trek pastries that show up in the Food and Bev channel. Right. So, yeah, right. Or the last ones that we just saw, the, the croissants that looked like seti eels. They looked fabulous. <laughs> yes. They looked fabulous. But you know, that's the great thing about the Patreon community. It started off as a support mechanism, you know, for Mission Log, but it became so much more than that over the course of the years, and especially in the last few months with the way that we set up our Discord. You know, our fans can come in for the very, very low introductory price on Patreon for $1 and then join the Discord and then become part of that community. And if they choose to support further on after that, that is absolutely fantastic. And they meet new friends, they form their own communities, they form their own channels, and they share everything under the sun not even just Star Trek, but again, food, travel, music, everything yeah. that, that they feel just brings them closer together. And I think that is the most incredible thing that I've seen. So we can't thank you enough. Your support has meant everything to the show to keep it going and help us to expand. Uh, thank you again to some of our newest patrons, Benjamin, David, Terry, Deanne, Alan, Troy, Barbara, and the rest of you. Uh, we'll change out that list in a moment as well because you keep showing up, and that is fantastic. So thank you again from us to you. And if you haven't joined, go ahead and join us at patreon.com slash mission log. Again, that address is patreon.com slash mission log. Hey, and a big thanks to this week's sponsor, Sluggo Cola. Now, you already know that Sluggo Cola is the slimiest cola in the galaxy, but there's so much more to this delicious green beverage. Take it from Nilva and the combined authority of the Ferengi Commerce Alliance. The delicious taste and slimy texture are the result of Sluggo's commitment to bringing you at least 43% live algae in every bottle. And for those of you concerned about your looks, Sluggo is the only green cola guaranteed to bring out that lovely shade of green in your teeth. Now, we're not saying Sluggo will help you earn a profit, but we do know that the 214th rule of acquisition states that you should never begin a negotiation on an empty stomach. Wait, 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 wait. Jo hey, John, look yeah. what we have here. Oh, my. Oh, uh, uh, Grand Nagus Zek. Wow, welcome to the show, Grand Nagus. I only have one second to say something important about Sluggo Cola. And that is, drink Sluggo Cola, the slimiest cola in the galaxy. Don't drink that eel wasser garbage. Where's my beetle snuff? Oh my, oh my. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Mm. All right. Okay, Prophet and Lace, let's find all the interesting stuff to talk about here. First thing that I thought of was, was that I'm, I'm always interested in the catalyst for social change. And sometimes those are singular moments or individuals. But more often, you're waiting for public opinion and the political environment to align to make smaller steps in one direction or another. So I really like the idea that Zek and Ishka are trying to force a radical change on Ferengi society. I also get that this isn't the kind of change that would be well-received after millennia of tradition. And 
apparently no real grassroots support at all. But but still, with that, it takes someone to push the idea ahead of where others are comfortable. So it, it's kind of nice to see those things just, you know, very boldly laid out here. And, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the cliche that the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who often do. It's gratifying to see Ishka with the aspiration to see a female Ferengi take the position of Grand Nagus someday. Like that, that's, I, I, that's kind of a throwaway moment, a throwaway line in there. But it's profound. And it it's shouldn't important. have been. That's the whole thing, John. It shouldn't yeah, have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. They, they've got thousands of years on us. They, uh, they should have gotten to this point at some point. Things tend to move very, very slowly on uh, Ferenginar. And, and I think, you know, along those same lines, what I'm also interested in is Quark's journey as someone who is dead set in his traditional ways, his traditional beliefs. But then he has to have a personal experience in order to change. And to me, this is a really – this is a double-edged sword um, because you want people to change. You want people to come to a better position than the one they had before. And we've talked about this kind of thing on Mission Log before uh, a long time ago and relatively recently. And I know I talk about it in real life as well. I like to think that the position of empathy for another person's situation should simply be the default. Like that, that should just be where everybody starts from. It shouldn't be something that you have to clue into because finally as an adult, it suddenly dawned on you that other people should have rights. Mm -hmm. You know, merely because the problem showed up in your backyard and now it's affecting you. Now, now it's happening to a family member. Now it's happening to myself in Quark's case, you know. So I, I always look at this as, as a little bit of, um, you know, we, we should celebrate the moment when somebody has the epiphany to change, but we should also ask ourselves, why did it take them this long to get here? Why, why did it have to be something that directly affected you Instead of you realizing, oh, look, uh, my society is better off if other people have rights, too, if other people have opportunity as well. I think the troubling thing here with Quark and the way that they wrote him into a corner in this episode, in the last few episodes, we really got to see Quark evolve in certain specific ways, especially the Ferengi-focused episodes. There was that scene in Valiant when Quark was... He was confessing, in a way, to Odo about how Dax, who he is falling in love with or is infatuated with, mm. being a female, is doing work that is beneath her station. Mm. So yeah. that was a learning moment, a, a moment of growth for Quark, the same way that you know he was propping her up in the Tongo game against Bashir. Why go backwards? from those two instances or from the instances from the other Ferengi episode, like Magnificent Ferengi. Why yeah. go back to this, this hardline traditionalist Ferengi and only make him that the character in this episode that is the, he's kind of like the, the antithetical argument, you know, of why Ferengi can't move forward culturally with Ishka and women and becoming part of society. 
And if we're being generous with kind of the idea there, because we have seen so much growth from Quark, is there a situation where he kind of, you know, corrects himself or he's around other Ferengi, so he feels like, oh, I, I have to act this way. I, I have to uh, put on this face of, of reverting to my much more traditional, you know, Ferengi fundamentals uh, or else I will be looked upon as something less than Ferengi when I'm around them. But, you know, look, I realize that we're dealing with an episode that is basically a farce and you have to push a character super far in that farce in order for them to to do anything. Mm -hmm. You do wonder if this was something important to the writers, uh, to Ira and Hans, oh, we need to push Ferengi society forward. We can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again where the females have to be naked and it's only the men who have the right to earn a profit, et cetera. Um, is there a better or different way to get Quark to come to that realization? Because Rom's already on his way. Right. Rom, Rom is super on his way. He, he loves and respects Moogie. Mm-hmm. And obviously he and Lita have a very functional relationship that uh, isn't, in any way him subjugating her. Right. So, um, yeah. So, I like, I get having Quark in that role to present some contrast and giving him some opportunity for growth, but we have seen growth from Quark, and I, I just have to wonder, do you, do you actually have to go that far to get him to truly come around? And then in the end, does he truly come around? Because right. they keep trying to play it off. Well, it's just the hormones. Uh, well, he's really back to his lecherous self again. I guess it comes back to why tell this story in the first place, because the mm. only way to push Quark in a certain way is to create something completely farcical about a very serious situation, a very serious idea. So in order yeah. for them to push his story forward, they have to comedically take a lot of very sensitive topics and present those in such a way where it makes it so that Quark clowns about the fact that there are very important issues that have affected him, that Mm. have affected his character's growth, but at the same time, though, they're done so in a way where I guess the audience doesn't really take it seriously because of the way it was handled, because of his... His uh, his gender swapping operation because the way that he handled himself as a woman because of the way that that relationship went completely sideways in Nilva's quarters and yeah. so on and so forth. I think that they lost a huge opportunity here to actually craft a better narrative aside from going for the low hanging fruit that easy comedic trope. Yep. Yeah, I, I think we're going to come back to exactly that that same idea. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about just how they chose to tell the story, because and let me let me preface this a little bit with something just occurred to me. You know, when we're talking about how this episode looks, how it plays, we're essentially talking about a drag performance. And and there are positive and negative uses of drag in pop culture and in entertainment. And it's a very different thing now than it was 25 years ago and certainly more than it was 50 years ago. And if you go way back, 
you know, you've got hundreds of years, uh, centuries of examples of men playing the female parts in plays, you know. So th there's a lot of traditional stuff mixed up here. But, you know, we land at this point in 1998 <laughs> with Armin playing Quark in drag doing this bit. But the other part of it here that needs to be spelled out because it's not something that I really spent any time in my notes on is we make very short shrift of this thing with Quark actually going through a surgical transformation. And we're not given a lot of detail on that. We're, we're not given, is it just, is it purely cosmetic? He's on hormones of some sort, which apparently must have kicked in in, in very short order to make this happen. But this is neither a very uh, sensitive nor complex nor thoughtful way to even talk about that, mm -hmm. because that's not what the story is about. And that's where I'm having a problem with the way it's portrayed. Mm -hmm. And and again, always with this episode and always with Star Trek, trying to be generous with the idea of what they were trying to accomplish. Even Armin said, and, and you know, you mentioned at the end of the last segment that we, we don't have him here to talk about this because our timing <laughs> with the interview <laughs> prevented that. But I did read later that he said that he had in mind both Some Like It Hot and Tootsie. Mm -hmm. And both of those movies, uh, for those who haven't seen the, Some Like It Hot, Billy Wilder, uh, 1960. I want to say, but uh, Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, um, and it, very big, over-the-top, hilarious, but over-the-top performances. And then you have Tootsie starring Dustin Hoffman as an actor trying to make it, but he can only make it in the guise of this female character that he's created. So then he has to sort of live his life as her in order to get the roles that he wants very different approaches in both of those movies, and they're separated by a generation. And even the, you know, at the same time, you you had a show like La Cage au Faux, which had been a movie and then a Broadway play in the late 80s and was already kind of in the mainstream. I'm saying all this to set it up this way. Tootsie was played more straight. You had a lot of empathy for the character. Mm -hmm. Lacage is telling a different kind of story because it's about being out and proud. And some like it hot in Armin's estimation, and I think he's right, it was too much of Tony Curtis winking at the camera where it was just like, look, this is funny. You don't buy us as women. We're just actors having a good time. And then on primetime, in TV in the 80s, you get Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari starring in Bosom Buddies. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying here is that the ones that work seem to work because they actually have a reason behind them that that is rooted in our care about the character and it's rooted in the statement that they're telling by using drag as a, a character element here. The ones that don't seem to work just seem to be making a joke out of a man in a dress. And to me, that joke is really played out and not amusing anymore. And I don't know if I would have felt differently seeing this show in 1998 
as I do now, but it seems like even giving the writers the benefit of the doubt of what they were trying to do by pushing the characters in that universe forward a little bit, we're telling it in a way that felt very backward to me. I might be skipping up here to our last segment a little <laughs> too fast, but, but that, that, that's something that just didn't sit right for me, and it has to do with the choice of what we're doing in the story with the character. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of this 1990s deviant trope on display here. Yes. And it, it takes it takes it a little bit too far, I think, even for not just a, a, a series show, but Star Trek in general. Because Star Trek is of a certain brand, a certain brand storytelling quality. And I was just, a, I, I'm a huge fan of 90s sitcoms, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Friends and Wings and, you know, uh, Seinfeld, all those shows. And I was watching several of them recently, just in reruns. And when I watch these episodes now, in the current state of how I am now, I really do cringe at just the very easy pot shots that these shows and these writers take at at treating their male characters with a way that uh, when they make them act effeminate or in a certain mm-hmm. way, poking fun at you know a certain lifestyle. And that's what's on display here. They didn't have to go as far as they did because this is Star Trek. They should have found a better, a more creative, a more respectful way to be able to handle at least this particular part of the story. Because I think that there is a part of the story that we haven't yet discussed yet. And it all gets encapsulated in this one scene. It's the scene where Quark and Moogie are arguing with each other. And Mm -hmm. Quark is basically telling that Moogie is the sole reason for the entirety of the Ferengi culture to implode because she's whispering things in Zek's ear, because she's puppet mastering him with her feminine wiles, with her feminism, with things like equality for females. And then Ishka says, what's wrong with that? And Quark said, before he met you, I'm paraphrasing here because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of dialogue, Before he met you, Moogie, he was the richest, most powerful Ferengi alive, and now he's just a puppet, and you're making him dance to your evil feminist tune. Wow. I don't even know where to start with that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Those are some powerful bits of dialogue that, that reveal so much, and that seems to then have become the lesser part of the story. You know, so it's just like, uh, well, now we just skip to the part where we humiliate Quark and then tie it all up with a bow. You know, uh, that I, I feel like those were those were moments, those were lines that truly should have been the heart of any sort of personal growth. But they they didn't go with that. And and let let me ask you this. So that is. That's the scene that is actually at the heart of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But they undermine that by just playing up all this nonsense about Quark trying to be feminine. And it, it, it comes across as, uh, you know, at best ham-fisted, at worst, incredibly misogynistic and backward. Let me ask you, because I, I referenced it in the last segment, do they undermine the Quark and Allura friendship, relationship, employee-employer relationship at the end? Do they undermine what they set up there? Again, trying to be generous with intent. 
we had a setup of sexual harassment, no matter how you slice it. Right. But then they decide at the end, well, we'll just throw him a twist. Okay, but then Quark is actually going to chase her down to get his Umox. And that still does not sit right with me. Not because they can't be consenting, not because she can't perfectly well have been intrigued by Umox, but they are still employee-employer, and they are still uh, there under that pretense because he harassed her into reading this. He threatened her job and her livelihood, and that's what got her into that position. So I'm not buying it either way. And and to me, yeah, I pose it as a question, but I just answered it. <laughs> do they undermine? Do they undermine what they set up there? And, and and yes, because again, going for the easy joke, they had him chase her down instead of being the bigger person and saying, "No, I can't do this." I, and and I'm sorry, I even brought it up. Yeah, I think they do. And I, I think that if we cared about Alora's character more, if we've seen her in other episodes and we, you know, mm. like we said before, that this, this show has an incredibly deep bench. And if it were Lita, yeah, we would be completely appalled. We should still be appalled because it is sexual harassment. But at the yeah. same time, though, and I can hear listeners responding to what we're seeing about this particular topic, mm. some people may see it as just see it as just. Hey, it's science fiction. Is there really sexual harassment with aliens? I would say yes. Mm. I'm looking yes. at it from yeah. my point of view as a as a a man of the 21st century and understanding how these relationships, this these abusive uh, dynamics are in the workplace. Because as a manager of people, I have had to step into or in between these types of situations. But there is that possibility that people don't see it this way because this is an alien thing. Do human rules apply? Like sexual harassment, yeah. like misogyny, like bigotry. Well, I, it, it's still an employee-employer relationship. It's still the the mismatch of power in a workplace. So even if they are completely different aliens of completely different genders that we haven't even heard of yet, mm -hmm. it, it's still using that position to threaten someone's job if they don't pick up the big book of Umox. Yeah, I, so, I, I yeah. guess that's, uh, you know, what in, in the future, if you're going to look for employment, you know, do a Google search and see what culture you're dealing with. Because anyone who wants to be employed by the Ferengi Commerce Alliance, do yeah. your homework. Right? You know what you're going to expect. This episode is starting to make me wish I had an update about Chief O'Brien's pants for you. So we've come to the end of Profit and Lace, and I have one burning question for John before we start the wrap-up, because at the end, we look for the morals and meanings and messages, and then we look to see if this episode holds up before we get to the episode holds up, which is the first part of our wrap-up. John, did you read Podcasting and Petting? <laughs> I just want to know, uh, because you know there, we still have to resolve that. I still feel that there's some unresolved issue yeah. in, in our dynamic yeah, here. You know, look, I, uh, I read it. I read it between segments, and um, I, I'm I'm not into it. I'm not into it. I'm going to have to decline. I'm I'm so sorry. Yeah, we're talking about the book and and the or the episode. Oh, uh, the book. 
the book. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. Now the episode is right. is different. Now the the episode we we can get into here, and uh, I could be much more. Um, forthcoming with my opinions there so um <laughs> i i i i kind of use the same phrase in the last segment if we're being generous and if is doing some heavy lifting here it's one of those episodes for me where you give the benefit of the doubt to the writers for their concept and their intent they wanted to do comedy and they wanted to do something with Moogie, and they wanted to do something that pushed the Ferengi forward a bit. And look, even though Star Trek traditionally has had a tough time with comedy, I still respect it when they try to break the mold. I mean, they, look, they, they've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of content to deal with in this huge universe where Trek takes place. So you have to find new and interesting ways to tell your story. So... We know what they were trying to do, and we know their intentions weren't completely boneheaded, and and yet we have this. And I, look, not all of them can be winners, folks, and to me, this is one of those that is not a winner. I, I think the biggest problems with this episode, I the whole thing, particularly in retrospect, comes across as this insensitive, sexist comedy full of stereotypes. And and that that honestly, that that's the worst part of it. You know, the writers here just seem to be going for the obvious, easy, and totally played out jokes. You you called it Norman the low hanging fruit. And that's where it's frustrating because I think you can do comedy. I think you can do farcical comedy, although I'm not totally thrilled with it when they have done it on DS9 before, but occasionally they've they've hit some good notes in there. And I think you can certainly do stuff with sex stereotypes or gender stereotypes and not have it be awful. And one of the things we're up against here was that Sid and Armin were trying to find those serious moments but then the script is fighting them, finding those serious moments. So you you pointed it out very well, uh, Norman, that scene between Quark and Moogie right before she has her heart attack. And they're really, they're actually getting to the heart of what's going on here. That's the most interesting part of the show. And that's really the conversation they all need to be having. Now, if you're going to slip in some comedy... And you're going to slip in some ways to get the other Ferengi on their side. Great. That's fine. But it's about 5% of that and like 95% of these weird sexist stereotypes going on that just make me feel very uncomfortable, you know. Mm -hmm. And and again, maybe it's just that, that it's an episode that hasn't aged particularly well. I don't know if I would have felt much different in 1998 seeing this for the first time in that context but it doesn't seem to be a really high water moment for star trek and for ds9 in particular now i think we can come back around to whether or not there is some valuable uh meanings morals messages in here i'll be <laughs> curious to see how that goes but as an episode it doesn't hold up for me it would be very hard for me to recommend this to somebody Mm -hmm. as a piece of track but um but tell me what you thought my friend 
Well, as I am want to do with our audience, I love being 100% honest with them, and I can 100% honestly say that this episode is absolutely absurd. <laughs> and yet the more I watch it, the more I find some, some uh -huh. of it endearing. Interesting. And I finally realized that in its, in its own way, this episode, like we've mentioned before, is kind of like the Deep Space Nine version of Tootsie. Or bosom buddies, if you mind the the really stronger qualities mm -hmm. in the in that kind of analogy. But those types of stories, there is a somewhat of a message there about how much you want to fit in certain systems of society. Well, what does that cost you, or what will it cost you in the long run? And this is where I I can't recommend this episode for the most part because the Deep Space Nine writing team and the production team, or those who have been deeply influenced by the progressivism of Star Trek that worked on this episode, they fell short. They felt really short mm -hmm. of finding the balance of the story they wanted to tell, the Moogie story, by leaning on cheap and gimmicky humor and that easy comedic way of, of using um, what audiences of today would find insulting and demeaning. And you're right, John, maybe in 1998... There was a different attitude about that. Doesn't make it right. It just makes it different right. from that pers that perspective of that uh, pointing humor at that 1990s era of deviancy in media. Yeah. And I find this incredibly distressing in the same way that many find the original series Turnabout Intruder distressing. That way that William Shatner channeled not just Dr. Janice Lester, but in that very belittling and stereotypical shorthand of acting like what he believed was a hysterical female. Right. So I'm sure that the Deep Space Nine team didn't have any true ulterior motives in their creation of the story. But in the same breath, I also feel that they didn't see the obvious issues in their script development. That process where someone could have, or more importantly, should have looked up and lifted a finger and said, do you think that this is a good idea? But on the positive note, as we are wont to do with most of the Deep Space Nine episodes that we have covered, the performances are fantastic. Yeah. Armin, Max, Aaron, Jeffrey, Wallace, Cecily, they all know their Ferengi characters as if they're wearing them like a second skin. And it's hard not to fall in love with, uh, with watching them because they're so endearing. But sadly, this episode is the complete opposite of what made, say, the magnificent Ferengi one of, if not the best Ferengi episode ever. And Prophet and Lace had the chance to build on that, but it just fell so short. And it actually diminishes the characters that have made so much progress from then to now. And remember, where we last left Quark, putting Dax on that pedestal, mm -hmm. as a woman who was demeaning herself by doing manual labor, that's where Quark was. Yeah. And at the end of this episode with Allura is where Quark is. And that is where he has taken a huge step backward. Yeah, that that's so unfortunate about this episode. And I, I think that's – there are many reasons why this one will never go down in history as one of Star Trek's great moments. Um, but I do – you know, again, I, I want to give the writers the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I always assume that people in a production are still trying to make the best production that they can. And even if it fails partly as a show, we still have to ask ourselves if there are morals, meanings, messages 
that stand up here that maybe transcend the episode. And, um, you know, I'll be honest with you. I, I really didn't take notes for this part of it because I thought that where it shines and and where you can actually mine those messages out of it, if you can stand watching the episode, the messages are fine. And I think the messages are pretty front and center. You know, uh, I express frustration with Quark's journey simply because I prefer to see characters who either come to their empathetic understanding under better circumstances than just, oh, I got forced under duress to do this. Now I can actually understand what somebody else is going through. But he does this thing that that actually one of our Patreon uh, supporters mentioned and put it as succinctly as this. It's the old walk a mile in my shoes story. And uh, in this case, it happens to be some heels that Quark is wearing. He actually has to go through the experience of being female in the eyes of these other Ferengi to get some clue as to what his mother has gone through and why these changes are important. And yeah, you know, I, I can say as much as I want that the default position that human beings should have, uh, and again, the Ferengi here representing a certain aspect of humanity, should be that we automatically have the needs of others in our minds and we automatically have an empathetic position toward them. But if we don't, there is this way of experiencing what someone else has experienced in order to gain new perspective. And that's what Cork does. I think the only problem here is that we undermine that by him going back to his old ways at the end. And those are very mm -hmm. old ways because those old ways predate the things, Norman, that you pointed out. The other thing here that I think is not necessarily a message, but it's kind of a, a fun way to look at the episode is how progress, societal, social, uh, even the sort of you know business progress, whatever, can come in some very strange ways. And it might be that crazy idea. It might be the person, the iconoclast who has the unpopular idea that actually needs to be explored and that actually needs to be embraced and fleshed out a bit because there are benefits for others along the way. It's amazing to me that Ferengi for thousands of years would not have seen the potential of profit from literally half of their population. But if what it takes is one person with a vision and that person being able to bend the rather large aged lobes of Grand Nagus Zek to make others hear that vision, fine. That's what it takes. It's almost as if you're channeling the end of Mirror Mirror. In every revolution, there's one man yes. with a vision, or in this case, one woman. Yes, right, right. You know, oppression or oppressiveness of any kind is absurd. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. It culturally, religiously, morally, or politically, socially, sexually, however you want to slice it, the self-proclaimed right to demean or subvert or impose any tyrannical force upon someone's freedom, uh, that freedom that enriches their lives in their relationships, their careers, any influence that gives their lives a fuller meaning is one of the driving forces that Star Trek has always championed. And I hate to make this comparison, not because it's a, it's a bad comparison to make, but it's just so ridiculously clear mm. because in this episode, there is such an oppressive sexism involved that 
it's just as rampant as the racism that Star Trek addressed in Let That Be Your Last Battlefield or the witch hunting of, of cultural deviances in The Next Generation's The Outcast. Mm. Now, I, I know that at times this episode was incredibly clumsy and clunky and um, obvious in its attempt to, to couch an important message with ridiculously <laughs> problematic execution. But I'm trying to stay positive on our mission statement, yeah. and I do believe that if you kind of sideline the narrative problems and the execution in this episode and, you know, let's just call it what it is, the overt use of the sexism and the sexualization and the misre- misrepresentation of personal choices and lifestyles, yeah. yes, all of that is antithetical to Star Trek. It's off-brand. Yeah. But if you pay attention to what they were trying to do, that nugget of an idea where Moogie could have been the one that could have created an entirely new society for the Ferengi culture and changed the entire fabric of their future, then yeah, there was a good moral meaning and message to be mined there, but it was really, really hard to find. Or at least when you found it, there was nothing left in that episode to support it. And I knew that this episode would go this way because at the very beginning, Quark's story was so telegraphed Mm -hmm. in the way that he sexually harassed Alora that the only way that you can wrap this story up is to not wrap it up because Quark didn't learn anything from the entire process because this wasn't really his story. It was Moogie's story. It was the story of the Ferengi that could have been. So, in other words... Capitalism is seen through the cultural stylings of the Ferengi feels like to the female population of the 53.5%. It is so willing to exploit for greater profits. Now, how's that for progress? (laughs) We will leave our listeners with exactly that question. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Time's Orphan. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers. Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Anyone else miss the good old days of Red Squad? Asking for a friend. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.